Kia ora tato, no mai harimai. Wade Manson here from Sport Gisborne Tairawhiti, and you're listening to our podcast, The Sideline Yak. Who would have thought six months ago a crazy idea has now come to fruition? Um, but we've done it, we've created a podcast. Uh, super excited. This podcast will showcase local sports experts and their stories. Uh, it'll also share the best tips and tricks to make sport more awesome here in Tairawhiti. Whether you're a coach, an official or a sports parent, this podcast has got you covered with practical advice and insights and I think will serve as a valuable resource for our community. So hit the share button Fano, and um, let's get this message out there far and wide. Kia ora. Today on the show, we're talking to international umpire and local hockey hero, Amber Church. Ko manga haimi toku maunga, ko waipawa toku awa, ko te atangi a māhaki toku iwi, ko nga te wahe toku hapu, no te tairawhiti ahau, ko Amber Church toku ingoa. Nō reira, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā tātou katoa. Amber has umpired over 100 international matches throughout her career. After receiving her international badge in Brazil in 2010, she has gone on to umpire at the Olympic Games, World Cups and the Commonwealth Games and continues to umpire and mentor at a local and national level. 2022 was a big year for Amber, having officiated at both the Women's Hockey World Cup in Netherlands and Spain and her first Commonwealth Games in Birmingham. She went on to umpire both gold medal final matches. She has won numerous awards over the years, but most notably the International Hockey Federation Umpire of the Year for 2021-2022 and Umpire of the Year at the 2022 Māori Sports Awards. Amber still plays hockey, is a member of the local Paikia women's hockey team and engages with Tamariki and Rangatahi through her role as a teacher. Today, Amber will share with us how the love of hockey provides her with enjoyment and connection, how giving back to the sport led her down the officiating pathway. We take a look at how her skill set as a teacher transfers to hockey and we discuss how a good support network is vital for those that are involved in officiating sport. Matimatatato, let's get started. So, welcome to the show. Thanks, Wade. It actually feels really weird to say welcome to the show when <laughs> <laughs> it's the very first one. Stoked to have you here. Really happy to to start, I think, the whole series, if it even gets further than, than a one-episode series. <laughs> yeah, really stoked to have you here. Obviously, as we said, like you'll be explained before we even start, but I suppose what would be cool to start off with is for you to share with us how it all started. Like, How did you become, well, obviously you become an international umpire, but what what's your origin story? Where did it where did it start? Where did it start? Okay, I guess it started from a little little township called Tikaka. Oh, I can't even say Tikaka. Where I went to a really little school, and I guess at our school the hockey team was the rugby team, which was the netball team, etc. You know, your parents were your supporters, who were your coaches, who were the rest of the games. And growing up living in the country, you had to come to town, and everyone was in town all day. And I had no interest in sport, but my siblings did, and they all played hockey. And I guess I was um, standing on the side of a hockey field one day, and it was pouring down with rain, much like this last weekend has been. And I was sort of watching the game, and I was 
a bit of a drowned rat and I was miserable and I remember my siblings all coming off the field and they had the most massive smiles on their face and they sort of had had the time of their life whereas I was you know hating life and wanted to go home and I kind of figured well if I had to be there and I had to be getting wet and cold and horrible then I might as well join in because they looked like they were the ones sort of having all the fun. So I guess that was where hockey first started for me. We went back and looked at where umpiring sort of came into it. Parents sort of always um, instilled in us that we had to give back to sport and it was more than just playing. It was volunteering, it was helping out, it was sweeping the change rooms at the end of the game kind of thing. I always remember Jim Conning ringing his bell at the end of a match and you know me and my brother racing to get the cards to see who could run them out to the refs the quickest and, and things like that. So I think that the umpiring sort of started from early vol- volunteer stuff and just helping out where I could. There was a under-13 boys team that needed an umpire to, to go to a hockey tournament and I'd recently been given my junior badge by Craig Gribble, my eldest brother played for Lynn Old Boys at the time and being from the country we all had to wait in town until he was ready to come home from his training and me and Andy my twin did an umpiring course and at the end of the umpiring course you had to do an exam and if you passed you got your local badge and if you passed with a higher grade then you got your um, national part for it and I beat him by one percent I've never beaten him in anything so I thought well, okay yeah this is this is all right I'll, I'll keep going um yeah the the junior badge meant that I could um, umpire it at a junior tournament and that was the under-13 one and was lucky enough to go to the Hatch Cup tournament in Dunedin with this under-13 Poverty Bay team. And yeah, it was a, a really fun time. I got to umpire for the first time at a tournament. I got to continue to be a part of a team because for me playing in the rep team wasn't an option. We didn't have enough players. Being from Poverty Bay, the numbers were slightly lower. So yeah, I got to be a part of this team. We went down on high marsh bus, travelled all the way down to Dunedin and all the way back. It was, you know, it was just part of the story, I guess. And so that's where it all started. And so correct me if I'm wrong, it was like you were umpiring the boys hatch cup, eh? Yeah. I'm probably going to jump around a little bit here with questions and stuff. But interesting to see, like, how did they take that? Were they fine with that? Like a, a girl umpiring the boys grade? Because I know like traditionally it's always been... The, the girls are part of the girls, the boys are part of the boys. And then obviously looking now what FIH has done with the pro league and now we're actually seeing female and male umpires umpiring both grades. Yeah, so back then my understanding is they had to apply to Hockey New Zealand for not a special dispensation but for approval to have, have me at that tournament. Hockey New Zealand has got a really strong pathway with their umpires and essentially they see that the age group stuff should be umpired by age group kids uh, and generally by the gender that that tournament is at. And that's that's not something that's written in, in stone. It's just that there's so many umpires there. It's, um, I guess, the easiest way to ensure that everyone's getting a fair opportunity. And so for me, I was, I guess, granted permission to, to go down there. And I loved it. I remember at the end of the tournament, I went straight to Greg and I was like, let me go down the men's pathway. <laughs> I was given a resounding no. <laughs> But yeah, it's it's not unheard of to, to have the men umpiring women and the women umpiring men. The following year I went to a Collier tournament, which is the girls' equivalent, and there was a male umpiring there. So if there's a need for it, then they absolutely have it happen. And I guess with equally amazing FIH's um, initiative to have men umpiring women and women umpiring men if there's a need, um, it's happened lots in the pro league recently. I think that that was sort of fast-tracked with the COVID situation and not having access to neutral umpires or gender-specific umpires in some of the tournaments that they had or in some of the locations. So, yeah, it was fast-tracked, and I think that it's um, been seen around the world as, as a high success. Well, what's the feeling been like uh, amongst your 
colleagues, I suppose, or your your friends in that in that scene in the international scene, are they like loving it, or like is it something that they enjoy? Or I think initially being a new thing, um, there was mixed feelings about it. But I think that as long as there's a purpose for it, then everyone is is keen for it to happen. I think if it's just happening, I don't want to say for you know. What's, what's the word? If it's just happening for, for media or, you know, for it to be seen as women are doing the men's games and the men are doing the women's games just as a ploy, then I think that that's not something that we endorse. But I think because it's currently got a need, then it's absolutely something that needs to happen. My opinion is hockey's hockey at the end of the day. And as long as, as long as everyone's doing the right thing and having fun, then that's all that matters. No, that's cool. So just, just going back, okay, we're going to flip back way back again. <laughs> Um, this is how my mind works. It all just go backwards and forwards. Did you only play hockey, or were there any was there anything else? So, like, obviously, you played hockey, umpired hockey, but were there any other sports in the mix back when you were younger? Yeah. So, I guess if we just stick with hockey for a second, I I guess I did every role in hockey. Also, coached a coached a team at intermediate. So, I mean, again, my twin brother. Um, when we were at high school, we coached the intermediate team. We also um, started the Linden High Combo team back, back when that sort of first got off the ground. So every role in hockey I, th- I think I've done. Um, and then I was a, I don't want to say I was a cricket player, but I dabbled in cricket. I played football for a number of years. Yeah, I guess I tried my hand at most sports just to, I don't know, you, you enjoy hanging out with your mates and it helps to keep you fit and, you know, fitter people are healthier people and it's good for your well-being and just gives you a connection with, with different people. So, yeah, I think most sports, so I gave a go. And then fast forward, okay, to your international career. When did you sort of decide that you wanted to be an international umpire? Like when when did it get to that point where it was just like, this is more than what I probably want or I need more or like what what was the... What was the, I suppose, the um, the trigger that went, yep, we're away? I've thought about this quite a bit and I don't know if there was one instance where I was like, okay, this is something that I want to do. I think it kind of crept up on me a little bit. I remember a national seniors tournament, which at the time was the sort of tournament below our National Hockey League, uh, where I umpired that and I remember my umpires manager saying, oh, you know, all the best for National Hockey League next year you'll absolutely be there. And I remember thinking at the time, <laughs> not a chance. <laughs> you know, we've got the some of the best umpires in the world in New Zealand umpiring at the tournament and there's there's no way little old um, Amber from Gisman is going to make that next year, let alone sort of in the next five years. And that same umpires manager had taken me for, for a coaching clinic um, where officials sh- officials were invited to a New Zealand under-18 clinic and she'd said, you know, map out your next 10 years and um, I think I was two years into that 10-year plan and at the end of the 10-year plan was National Hockey League and so I remember thinking to myself, oh, nah, not happening. And so I think at the time that was a bit of an indication that actually, you know, I, I could go places and then my first National Hockey League was in Christchurch and yeah, it was a it was a great place to be and the, the group was really welcoming and I really liked the connection that you made with people and so I think that that was again another point where I was like, huh, I really like being here and this is somewhere that I want to stay. And then in 2009, I went to Fiji and I did a tournament there and that was my first sort of experience of hockey outside New Zealand and that I think as well sort of hammered home for me that there's opportunity outside of New Zealand if you want to work hard and you want to do it. So yeah, I think those were sort of some of the key key times where I was like, oh yeah, okay, this is actually something that you can do and you can can go places. And then I got my first international appointment where I got my international badge, which was in Rio de Janeiro in 2010. And interestingly, 
I think maybe six of the people at that tournament were at the recent World Cup with me. And so that was where it started for me and for them and to, to do a full circle and reconnect with a lot of those people. I guess it's just what I really like about the sport is while hockey is amazing and it's an incredible sport to be a part of, it's just the um, the tool that we have to, to make those connections with people. So just going back to that, that first Olympics, can you share with the listeners, like what were the feelings? It must have been huge, like to be at your first Olympic umpiring on the international stage. A little bit unreal, to be honest. The Rio Olympics will always be pretty special for me. Um, the connection for me between my first international tournament being there and then going back for the Olympics, you could you could see the location of where the turf was that I was umpiring in for my first sort of international experience and now what it looked like for the Rio Olympics and all the hard work that they'd done to to make that happen. And even they'd just been announced as having the Rio Olympics when I first went there in 2010. And so a lot of the people that were involved in that tournament had already sort of been earmarked as people that they would like to have involved in the Rio Olympics. And in that first tournament, the tournament stopped for three days. It was a natural disaster. There was a number of um, lives that were lost and, and things like that. And to have the connection between what we did at that tournament, because we went out into the community and helped rebuild some of some of the villages and things like that, to then go back six years later and see how far a number of those people had come and what their roles were within the sport, for me was so much more than just hockey it was the connection between I guess the present and the future and what their goals were and I mean for some of them that was their livelihood for six years you know that's what they dreamed of and and I'd absolutely dreamed of the Olympics but to see how far those people had come and the work that they'd put in reminded me of everything I'd also done. I was lucky enough to to share that Olympics with a number of New Zealanders as well that had sort of been on that journey with me and there were lots of people that had worked really hard but I felt like I'd worked extra hard to get there um I remember Craig Gribble talking to um some of the the media people there and um talking about how yes the players have stories and there's um lots of incredible stories out there for you to share but actually our officials have stories to share and I cringe at the memory but he I guess told my story of coming from Gisborne being appointed to the Rio Olympics uh having umpired on grass and we'd only had a turf for six months you know and that all of my hockey had been on grass and if people say that um you need to have flash facilities and the the access to every resource under the table to be any good well actually that's not the case at all it's it's hard work and I guess doing what it is that you can with the resources that you do have that makes a difference yeah, and I, I think there's something you touched on in there. It's quite interesting around like that. The officials have stories as well because we hear a lot about athletes and and like the coaches and all sorts of stuff and like the ones that have got there. But like, it's such a crucial part of the the game or the or the, you know like what's happening in front of you. What are the feelings around that in terms of like? Is it frustrating that sometimes put to the side and it's more the athletes and the you know the teams that are being more focused on? I guess it's no different. Let's say your role as a coach. Coach is probably in a similar situation where it's the players that get the attention and the coaches are the ones sort of doing a lot of the work behind the scenes. But as soon as something goes wrong, it's the coach that people go to as well, you know, to have questions answered. And I think I think sports come a long way. I'd say probably 10 years ago, players were at the forefront and that is where all the attention was. But I think everyone now sees that actually there are so many moving cogs to, to our game of sport and that everyone has an important role to uh, to play and I personally don't see any of the roles any more or less important um, I just see them as being different for me and it's been a an approach of mine throughout my 
I don't want to say career, but career, you've got to control what you can and forget about what you can't control. And I can't control the perception of other people and the perception of how important different people are. Um, I know the hard work that I put in. I know what I want out of the sport and where I want to go. And as long as I'm focusing on what I can control, I forget about the other things. I guess I'm also not the type of person that likes the limelight and the attention uh, attention on me. Thanks for the attention being on me, Wade. <laughs> so, yeah, I guess I guess things have changed. There's definitely people who... Um, within the role of officiating have really stepped up and I guess taken on a role of trying to enhance the profile of of officials and some people like that some people don't and I guess we've all got our own preferences. Something I just heard you say in there around what you want out of the game what what do you want out of the game? (laughs) Tough question right enjoyment yeah I really want enjoyment I do it for for enjoyment I think something I try to really get people to understand, in particular, like we go back to what you're saying about officials being, you know, copying a bit of flack if things don't go right or anything like that. I genuinely believe that everyone goes out there to do their best. No one goes out there to do a bad job. You know, even if we look at our club competition, I don't think there's anyone out there that is going out to do a bad job, to make the wrong decision. And I think that what I want people to remember is actually they're either doing it because there is no other option. It's their turn that they're rostered on to umpire and they can't afford to pay someone to do it or they can't get a volunteer to do it for them there's no other option they want the game to go ahead and they can't afford to pay the fine if they can't buy it so they go out there and again try their best or people actually enjoy doing it (laughs) and they're going out there to enjoy the game and for me that's a big part of it is I just enjoy it and I want our sport to be better and if I can contribute to that then that's what I'm going to do it has added benefits like you know the exercise is good for me then the connection with the players and with my friends and, and things like that is also really nice. I get, get to tell some really cool stories. I get to go to some amazing places, uh, which is, you know, all, all a bonus, I guess. But the number one thing is enjoyment. And I guess number two is people that I get to connect with. Cool. Just looking at an international game. So when you go in there, like, so share with us how you approach a game, sort of like what does it look like pre, during, and then post? Pre starts probably depending on what the tournament is, like a good six months in advance at least. You'd start looking at your fitness and making sure um, that you're on top of your game. You don't you don't look like to look to sprint before you can run, I guess. You'd sort of plan it all out and, and look at it by this date I wanna be, you know, getting this mark on the yo yo test or, you know, hitting these reps at the gym or whatever it is. And so you look at the end point and I work myself backwards from there, um and and set a number of goals for that. And that's I guess that's sort of the fitness aspect of it in terms of the games you try and get as much hockey as you can for me I've learned that the type of hockey is irrelevant in my eyes it doesn't need to be an international game to be preparing me for international hockey <laughs> otherwise remember the last game I did before I went to the Tokyo Olympics was um for a to-do high school against one of the other high schools and it was um really refreshing like that for a to-do team were just so stoked to be out there and they were incredibly happy to be playing hockey. It didn't matter that it hit the back of their stick 10 times and they booted it in the goal and, and whatnot. They were just really happy to be out there and um, being with their friends. And so for me, you know, my intention for what I would do with that game is completely different to what I would do if I was umpiring little old boys against YMP. So the, the standard or level of hockey is irrelevant in my eyes. It's what you do with that sport. But yeah, I would be making sure that I was umpiring as much hockey as possible. I would be watching games online as well. Being in New Zealand, you don't necessarily have access to, I guess, in-person live international hockey on the regular like um, other countries do. And so I just 
use the portal that we've got called Coach Logic to make sure that I was looking at online hockey and watching um, as much of it as possible. And then I guess once you get to tournament, the you sort of arrive three days in, in advance and that is spent with your umpires managers and your TD and you go through briefings and whatnot, just trying to get everyone on the same page. And I think this is where umpires are unique. So a coach has access to their team generally in the build-up to a tournament. And whether that's for six weeks, if it's for six months, 12 months, whatever it is, they select their team and they have access to their team in person in the build-up to a tournament. Officials come from all over the world and they're shoved together in a room three days in advance. And you've got three days to get them all on the same page, working towards a common goal. And don't get me wrong, we're doing online meetings and the build-up to it and, and all that sort of stuff. And you know, doing a lot of work prior to make sure we do have that connection and are all on the same page. But in terms of being there together, which you, you can't be being, being in the same room to sort of do some of that stuff, you know, that's three days in advance. So you've got a very short amount of time to make sure you're all up to speed, I guess. And so there's briefings that you do on that. You watch video clips, you watch hockey games, you do interactive activities, and then, yeah, you get your appointment and then you go from there, I guess. And I think for me, if I when I get an appointment to a match straight away, I have conversations with people that I know that have umpired those teams in the past. You know, just some of the things that they've noticed happen, some of the structures that they play, what it is that they look to do at different sort of times in the game, and that's not so that you get preconceived ideas. That's just to build your awareness and potentially change your positioning based on what's happening on the field, just so that you can get the right decision at, at the time for for the game, I guess. And that's all, as umpires, that's all we ever want is to try and get the right decision. And then from there, I guess you go out and you umpire the game. Ideally, you do a really good job. <laughs> but even if you don't, the process for me is exactly the same at the end. At the end, I then look to build and reflect on what it is that happened. If the game did go really well, why? What is it that I did in that game or in the build-up to the game that meant the outcome was a really positive one? If it didn't go so well, again, why? <laughs> what is it that I need to work on? What do I need to build on? What happened in the game? You know, What was happening that I didn't identify, that I didn't action, so that I can make sure that when I'm, um, I guess, faced with that in the next game, I actually react in a different way. Because yeah. that's, you know, reflection is quite a massive part of it and a process of, of I suppose, everybody's, game whether you're an umpire athlete or um, a coach so that process after the game like where does the feedback come from do you have somebody that provides feedback or you're just relying on your self-reflection or like what's like what does it look like in terms of that all of the above so we've got an umpires manager and we'll talk I guess as a tournament aspect because in Individual international games are slightly different to in a tournament format. So a tournament format, you have usually two umpire managers and after the game, they'll give you feedback. They usually give it to you as a group. So there's four roles that are appointed for every hockey game at an international tournament. There's the two on-field umpires, there's the reserve umpire, and if there's video umpire at the tournament, then there's also the video umpire. And so they will um, meet with the group of four usually and they'll give you a debrief. It's quite different to how it used to used to be it's very interactive now it's a lot of input by the the umpires themselves um, a lot of self-reflection is required to happen beforehand it's definitely not spoon-fed to us of this is what you did wrong this is what you did right it's more of a conversation it's more questioning um, it's definitely making us think for ourselves and analyze the game there's definitely times where they say look actually you missed the mark on this or this here should have been 
I don't know, a yellow card or it actually should have been a free hit out, not a peeling corner. If there's times where they need to tell us an answer, then they'll definitely do that. But yeah, it's more of a conversation and try to get us to, I guess, think for ourselves so that when we are in the situation where we don't have access to an umpire's manager, then we can still make sure that we're doing that reflection. So yeah, initially it's with with the group of four, um, it's with yourself, it's with the umpire's managers. And then it all depends on the umpire themselves as to what happens next. For me, I think I can learn a lot from the players. I can learn a lot from the coaches and um, the coaching group itself and also from the spectators and the, the fans alike. I think that everyone has something to contribute to the game. And when the time is right, I really enjoy a conversation with the coaches and the players as well, whether it's that they've misunderstood something that I've done or vice versa, or if there's something that you're always having to call a team or a player up for. I think that it's an opportunity for education and whether that's that I'm actually interpreting that wrong or that somebody needs to change something that they're doing. We all just want a good game of hockey and so if we can contribute to that by just talking to each other, then I really think that's beneficial to, to our sport. Do you have any stories you could share in regards <laughs> to the coaches and stuff? Because I know you've told probably a couple to me when you've come back from certain <laughs> tournaments or games and they've been, they've been quite funny Like in terms of like obviously, yeah, it's an experience, but is there anything that you could share with the listeners around that, like, or even oh. just something? Because because hockey in certain countries is quite emotional. It's an emotional game. Like, it's very we use this word a lot, passionate, which um, irks me a little bit because <laughs> there's there's that level of where does it become a bit over the top. But yeah, there are like, are there any stories with teams or coaches that you've had? I think you know, there's definite. I can't think off the top of my head now. You've really put me on the spot. I definitely know there's some. I just can't think about what they are. I've definitely had situations where um, I've been umpiring and, you know, I've had coaches on the sideline really give me a gobful, you know, really get into me. And it's the thing to remember, and it takes a lot to get there, is that it's not personal. Like you say, they're just passionate and they are just wanting – the um, right outcome and in their eyes at the time the right outcome is for their team to win and so yeah you just got to remember that it's it's not personal and it's just part of the game and for me I'm okay with that until it becomes personal and if it gets personal then then that's when I have an issue with it and it's like you say it's passion and it's emotion and, and it is really good for our game if it's done in the right way I guess there's been times I definitely remember of you know coaches really getting uptight about a few things really you know yelling and whatnot and then sort of two days later coming up and saying oh look I'm I'm really sorry for that I reacted the wrong way and um, I really apologize for that and you really appreciate that as an umpire you really appreciate that they have come to you and they've reflected on their behavior and have said hey I'm really sorry I'm going to go and ideally it doesn't get to that but reflection is key I think one that really I guess him at home for me connection and the importance of building relationships at the recent world cup in in spain i had the unfortunate situation of getting COVID for the first time while i was there and i missed the first i think it was the first eight days of of the world cup and when you work so hard for something for so long and essentially it's taken away for something that was out of your control it was it was really difficult and it was really hard. I had to, I guess, sit in a room by myself. For, it, it ended up being um, 11 days, but it was eight days of, of the World Cup. And, and the first game back, I remember Japan was playing and 
Jude, who coached New Zealand for for a number of years, and I'd had a number of conversations with him, and he'd been around the Black Sticks for a, I guess, a very similar time for what I'd been sort of on the international scene, and he'd come up and he said, "Oh, look, you know, all the best. It's really good to to see you here, and it's good to see you out and about." Um, and I said, "Oh." You know, I think it's cost it goes right, dude. I sort of apologize in advance if, if things aren't great. Sort of a bit of tongue in cheek and, you know, we, we have a good relationship. We can have a bit of a joke with him. And he got really serious really quickly and he said, hey, look, it actually doesn't matter. Go out there, enjoy yourself and everything will be fine. Just really happy to see you here. Which for me was really nice to know that actually, yes, it is a World Cup. Yes, they want to win. They want their outcome to, to go in their favor. But actually we're all humans at the end of the day and the fact that we get to be there and enjoy it is actually I guess the the priority so yeah that was a really nice moment for me and it was I think it was the second person I'd seen out of COVID other than the um the umpires around me so so to see a friendly face was really nice nice it's a nice story he's a nice man so (laughs) yeah so just moving around that around that athlete umpire interaction and we sort of like touched on that around that pre-game like around researching teams and players but not necessarily just obviously having a preconceived idea of what they're going to do it's just more to help you in terms of your umpiring like how important is an official to sport or how much does the umpiring experience relate to the player's experience tough question i think if i was to put myself in a player's shoe which i mean i i still play as you, you know still you, play. Yeah, you're my, still a player <laughs> you're my coach right <laughs> you apply a, an official can impact a game 100 percent. and if if they're not doing a good job it's detrimental to the game and so I think an official has a huge impact on the game I know I've played in games where it's really clear that the umpire is just there to get the cash at the end of the game and there's a lack of respect there for the game and it's really disappointing when when that happens because you can see they're not concentrating on what it is that they're doing so I think that the umpires have a huge impact on the game as do the players there's a number of times where I know as an umpire you know, you've had players yell at you that you've missed the foot in the middle of the field and, and things like that. And <laughs> I want more than nothing to turn around and say, yep, and you've missed how many open goals, but I haven't said anything, you know. And so I think that we all just need to remember, actually, that we all are important for the game and no one is more or less important than the other person and that we all have an impact. And what that impact is is different depending on on the situation, I guess. So you as a player, do you feel that you do anything different? Like obviously being an umpire, but then as a player, do you look at the game differently as a player, like after umpiring? I feel I am a better player and a better umpire because of my other role. I'll take the other team that you coach, Wade, um, for an example, the local boys high team. So we ran a rules awareness session with them a few weeks back and all it was was sit down and much like this, sit down and, and have a conversation and they asked us a number of questions and, you know, as a being a teacher, you always say there's no stupid questions, so make sure you ask all the questions and they asked every stupid question you could think of. <laughs> but um, I think that their awareness of the rules and their understanding increased so much just from having those conversations and I I say I have the, the privilege of umpiring them the very next game that they played and and I don't know how you felt as a coach, but I saw a direct improvement in, in the way they played from their understanding of the rules that had happened. And, and so I think that if you have an understanding of the rules and you have an understanding of what it is that the umpire is trying to do, then you're going to play better as well. And I, I remember there was one moment in the game where I blew a free hit for the ball not going five before it went in the circle and 
Nine times out of ten, the players will go and put the ball on the edge of the circle and say the free hit needs to be taken here. Oh, one of your boys, Harry Haywood, went running over and he hit the ground. He's like, the ball is here. And for me, just seeing that he had his understanding of just even a little rule like that just showed that he could play the game faster. He could get things going. He didn't have to ask me the question. He sorted it all out himself and they could all take the quick free hit and off they went. And there were so many times in that game in particular where I felt they caught the opposition on the back foot because they had an understanding of what the decision was then going to be. They sort of looked up and away they went, which, yeah, I think it had a huge improvement on the game. So I think that as players understanding the rule um, and understanding what we're trying to do as officials is that they play better. I also think I umpire better because I play. I think I have a better understanding of what players are trying to do. I mean, I might not be able to do it as a player, but I understand what it is that they're trying to do. And I think that's why I always try and make sure I have conversations with coaches and with players so that I can continue to build my awareness because what they're trying to do impacts on what I need to do as an umpire. Something as, as little as when there's a penalty corner down the other end, what is it that players look to do when the penalty corner breaks down? Because I'm in the worst possible position to be standing when that happens, so where do I need to go as quick as possible and over the short amount of distance? And if I can understand what players try to do in that situation, then I can determine what I'm going to do as an umpire. So yeah, I think both roles have a impact on the other one and trying to understand is key. I, I can definitely say from first-hand experience <laughs> with the boys, um, going through that, just that chat like we're doing now, just the, just the discussion around the rules has had a huge impact on them. And I can't stress enough, like for whoever's listening to this, if you're in any code, to be able to have those sessions with referees, umpires is huge. The boys now do not even say much around an umpire when they come off. They're just more concerned around what they're doing in the game, what they're how they're playing, what they can be, what strategies they can be doing to become better. Whereas I could say probably beforehand they were probably coming off and going, oh, the umpire missed this, the umpire missed that. But after that session with you and Joe, Joe coming, it's made a huge difference. And like, I, yeah, as I say, I can't stress enough. Like. Anybody, everybody out there should just go and get a club or your team and just get a referee in and just chat, just chat about different things. It's, it's, yeah, it's beneficial. I think that's the key too is um, removing some of the, the barriers or the, the misconceived them and us is really important. There definitely was a time where it was the players over there, it was the umpires over there, and then your coach turned up and he left again. And that needs to be removed. You know, like we are all there for the game of hockey and the only way that the game is going to get better is if we all work together and the only way for that to happen is to have some conversations. Exactly. Um, I think there's nothing better than going into the club rooms after a match and seeing everyone sit around the same table, you know, having a punnet of chips and a Coke or whatever it is that you have and just talk about the game because that's when everyone's going to get better. That's for me, I learn my most when I hang over the side of the fence and I just talk with people. You can, again, build an understanding. You can learn some things. You can find out what people are passionate about and what it is that they're trying to do. You can teach a few people a couple of things. But, yeah, I just that's when I enjoy things the most. Yeah. Skill sets. <laughs> I'd love to know what skill sets makes a good umpire. And then before probably you start, just to help along the way. So obviously in my little introduction, I would have explained that you're a teacher. Do you have any examples of how being a teacher can transfer or like your occupation transfers over to officiating? Yes. <laughs> I think so. It's common knowledge in hockey that a number of officials are teachers. And I 
don't think that's a coincidence at all. Teachers need to be reflective. They need to have a skill set where they can deal within a range of personalities um, and approach each one of those uh, as individuals, but yet trying to achieve a common goal. And I think that that's partly why teachers make really good officials. As an umpire, you need to be reflective. You need to be compassionate. <laughs> you need to be really patient. But you need to have a really strong skin as well. And I think as a teacher, you need to have all of those same things as well. And then you also need to have have it in you where you're not afraid to roll out your sleeves and, and get stuck in. Um, games are never going to go completely smoothly for your whole career there's going to be games where they just go to the pack where you have to do everything within your toolbox you know we call it a toolbox to make sure that everyone gets to the end of the game and they're still in one piece um, it might not be pretty but the goal is to to get to the um the end and so you roll out your sleeves and you get stuck into that and it's not comfortable, but yeah, you just need to be willing to do that. And I think that's part of the skill set that an umpire needs to have. And it, it takes you a long time to to get to that point. And it's the same in, in education. You have have a lesson in a class where it's just going terrible. Um, and you need to be willing to, to change where it is you're going and what it is that you're doing and not wait till the end of the lesson to do that. You actually need to, to do it on the fly. So yeah, as officials, you need to be flexible as well. And you have a game plan. But you also need to be willing to change that game plan because while you have a game plan before the game, you actually don't know how it's going to go until the two teams present in front of you and give you what it is that you're going to be working with for the day. Yeah. Do you use a, your growly voice much? or? I don't know, Wade. Have you been on the end of that one? <laughs> yes, Wade. You've experienced a growly voice. <laughs> um, yeah, like I said, you've got to have times where you're willing to roll up your sleeves and, and get stuck in. And if that means you're put your teacher's voice on then then you're definitely doing for me local hockey and it's getting to the stage for me with international hockey as well where you learn the players and you learn the way to to deal with different people and the the outcome that you're going to get if you approach things in in a particular way club hockey and in Gisborne I know the players that I can absolutely have a conversation with and I guess try and work with and I know the players who there's just no chance that's going to happen and you look to manage them in, in a different way and that just comes through experience and that comes through being reflective and um, trying different things and it's never ever going to always go that way there's always going to be a time where what you tried didn't work but you've got to be willing to change because if you keep trying to do that one thing that never worked you're never going to get any better career highlights i can think of last year's probably being one of the the big ones yeah L- last year was a really big year world cup was was absolutely massive and having it started the way it did like I, for me I thought I was in really good shape for it um, leading in I'd done a lot of work on my fitness you know it's something that I genuinely pride myself in and I, I work really hard not not just for hockey but that's something that I just enjoy anyway um, I'd done a lot of work on my umpiring I'd yeah I was I was ready and I was primed and I, I was keen to get started and to arrive and you know a couple of days later be stuck up in my room with COVID <laughs> Um, it was really disappointing, but again, I, I looked to see, you know, what is it that I can control in this situation and what is it that I can't? Well, I can't control the fact that I'm stuck in my room <laughs> in Spain <laughs> with one window <laughs> for whatever it was, however many days. And then to come out of that and to umpire pretty well was really pleasing. Um, I was a little bit nervous to see how that was going to go, to be honest. But I think that the hard work that I did in the lead up to it, um, in particular around my fitness, really, really helped with that. Yeah, and to to be really fortunate to be appointed to the final at the end of the tournament was, you know, 
incredibly pleasing. You never go to a tournament thinking, oh, I'm going to get the final. You, you take it one game at a time. And to be able to have the privilege of um, umpiring that match with um, Sarah Wilson on the other end was, yeah, just something I'll, I'll never forget. That was an incredible experience um, in Spain with a sold-out crowd. The fans there were absolutely incredible. The game of hockey itself was amazing. Yeah, that was definitely a, a career highlight. And then to be able to follow it up with Commonwealth Games for me was extra special. I'd never been to a Commonwealth Games and, and that ship for me I thought had sailed. I was appointed as a reserve originally to the Commonwealth Games and I guess unfortunately for her but fortunately for me Sarah Wilson pulled out of that tournament. Her lovely wee baby was due at the exact same time as the Commonwealth Games being started. So she pulled out and it just meant that I got the call up. So being able to go to the Commonwealth Games, which for me, being a kid, like I have the most fondest memories of sitting around the TV at home with the family, watching the Commonwealth Games and being then able to experience that was, yeah, it was really special. And they call it the friendly games, but oh, it was amazing. You know, you had some of these countries that it is the only tournament that they get to go to and they were just so pleased to be there and they they didn't take things for granted they rocked up and their uniform looked completely different to say Australia and New Zealand who you know they're at the the top of the game and you've got these other guys who I guess are the minnows um, and they're all playing in that one tournament was was really special and really humbling to be a part of and I'll never forget one of the players in one of the teams, I, I think it was Kenya, but I don't remember off the top of my head, got hit in the face at a penalty corner. And I'll never forget the noise, but the really special thing was was that every team doctor that was around on that field ran onto that field. You know, it wasn't just the Kenya manager that ran on to help her. It was the New Zealand doctor. There's a couple of other people that were sort of watching, getting ready for their game, and they all ran on and helping this wee lady off the field with six players and only one of us, sorry, six people, when only one of them was from her team because everyone else was, you know, willing to help out as well. And that was really humbling and just showed the specialness of, of a Commonwealth Games in particular. So, yeah, that was, that was cool. But I mean, some of my highlights for me, while I'm always humbled of, what I get to do internationally and, and the role that I play and the places I've been and the tournaments I've done. Lots of my highlights relate to things that happen in New Zealand or things that happen locally. Some of the finals that Joe and I have been a part of have been some of the best hockey that I've I've got to umpire. Being part of the, the Māori tournament that was here in Gisborne a few years ago and umpiring that final with, with Henry Mohi who, you know, local, umpires lots of our local stuff and to umpire that final with him and then for it to go to a shootout and to have him experience some of that stuff that Joe and I in particular have experienced and I guess the highs of a game like that and he was just buzzing when he came off that and so to experience that with him was really cool yeah so lots of the local stuff for me is, is a highlight or seeing seeing the boys high boys and the impact that it had on their game for me that's that's the things that really um show that what what I'm doing as an umpire is actually making a real difference or you know having some of the kids come up to me and be like oh I swear on TV, Miss, that was really cool. Or I had I had a kid that came and said, "Can we all be an umpire? Can anyone do that? I want to do that." You know that that's really special. Having people say, "Oh, being from being from Gizzy and seeing what you're doing is just really special." Or you know, Auntie Darling and her always coming up and saying, "Oh, you know, you what you're doing is special, and you're always from from Gisborne, and you know, you'll always be one of us." You know, that's that's the stuff that that means the most to me. And like I said, it's it's always humbling to do the international stuff and that's always going to be special, but I guess who I am is, is a local girl and that's who I'll always be, so, yeah. Nice. I suppose that's a big thing, you know, like 
the support you get here is huge. And, and I think, has that been something that's helped in a lot of ways? Like when you do go away, like even though like you say, like a lot of highlights from here, but like what, what's that support network like here for you in terms of what you do or to be able to further your career? Yeah, it's massive. Part of that is, and I mean, our, our two teams had a quiz night recently um, and one of the questions in there was how many international caps have I gotten? When they were doing the answers, Scraggy made me stand up there and I guess read my stats out and <laughs> a few minutes later one of the local players, Tam, says to me, oh, you know, it's amazing how many games you've done and yet we still hassle you and give you as much flack as what we do but yet you've got that many international matches and I think that's one of the things that actually pushes me to be better is that I walk out onto one of our local games and um, while everyone knows, you know, oh, it's Amber Church, she's an international hockey umpire, they don't settle for that. They are not willing just to allow me to turn up and umpire a game and they just accept that I'm going to be the best that I can be. They actually force me to be better. They, they're they not afraid to question some of the things that I say or some of the things that I do. I mean, sometimes I'd like them to do a little bit nicer. <laughs> but, yeah, that... The expectation that actually I need to live up to, you know, this label that I have of an international hockey umpire is some of the things that force me to to be better. But also to know that while I am away, that I have the support of them. I also know that home is looked after as well. My, you know, my dad is on dialysis and my family live in Tikaraka, which has recently been hit by, you know, the cyclone. And, And while I'm away and if, you know, something was to happen, I know that straight away there's a number of people that are, they're going to, I guess, stand up and help out where where's needed, which I guess is the important thing because while home is really important to me, if I'm away at an international tournament, that is where my focus is and that is where my priority is. And so to be able to have my whole attention on that and know that home is looked after no matter what that looks like is really important. But I think that that goes both ways. If we go back to, to Cyclone Gabriel, that was um, massive for the Gisborne region, but I also had the Hockey Pro League. I had one of my appointments in Wellington which was the weekend after that and you know we had no internet we had no cell phones I had no way of communicating with anyone outside of the region to say hey actually yes I'm coming to this tournament or no I'm not and so when I landed in Wellington and I turned on my phone to the first sign of I guess internet um, in, in a week and I I had some, I screenshot it, I'd have to have a look, but it was something like 170 wow. WhatsApp messages yeah. from all over the world you know, that was just, what do you need? How can we help? Let us know and we'll do it in a, you know, in a heartbeat kind of thing. And to know that not only do I have that support network at home, but actually all of those people that I've met all over the world, um, you know, over the, the last however many years, must be 13 years, are there to support my home as well, which is, yeah, humbling and, and really pleasing to see. So I think that Support network at home is is incredibly important, but also that support network when I go somewhere else is also important too. It's awesome to hear, eh? Very Mm. awesome to hear. Just sort of like winding it up a little bit now, what advice would you give someone who wants to get into umpiring? Give it a go. Don't be afraid to get it wrong, but you've got to admit that you got it wrong. You're never ever going to get it right all the time. So admitting that you got it wrong and actually you do need to learn a couple of things is really important. Have a support network because that's really important. It's going to go bad it's going to go really bad that's just the way sport is um, and having that support network around you to help you is is really important and do it for the right reasons if you're in it for the cash if you're in it for the accolades or you know the shiny silverware at the end it's it's never going to play out well for you yeah it's really nice to have some of that stuff but if that's the only reason you're doing it it's not going to end well 
So yeah, do it for the right reasons and just take the first step. There's so many people that would make incredible umpires or officials and they're just afraid to take that first step and then take the second step because sometimes the first step doesn't go too well. Yeah, because I think like when you talk about the support network, do you think like when someone first goes into umpiring or officiating, we're relying on the code to be putting that bubble around the person or like are you, are you saying that the person that wants to do it needs to find, like realistically we're looking at the code, aren't we, needs to be able to support those around them? I think it's a combination of factors. I think the code needs to be better. I think all of our codes need to be better. If we go back to what, what I said a while ago around no one goes out to do a bad job. And I think that as a code, we need to remember that. Um, we need to, I don't want to say put a bubble around people because they they need to have a, a bit of a thick skin. They need to be able to take some criticism. The thing that I always come back to is is not the fact that people ask a question or they have something to say to you. It's all about how that comes and the way that that's said. So I think that, like you say, the code needs to be better. Um, we need to have a code of conduct, but the code of conduct is useless if we don't enforce it. So we also need to be enforcing that. I think as clubs that we need to be having a bit of accountability to our players, to our coaching staff, to our supporters around the way they conduct themselves but also our associations, and I mean this for all codes, need to make sure that they're implementing some of the things that, that they want to see. It's all well and good for all of us, not just our codes, but for all of us to to sit around and say, oh, this is what we want. But actually we need to practice what we preach. We need to make sure that, you know, if we're playing a game and we see things um, that we don't agree with, that we actually need to sort of stand up and, and say something. And whether that's a we note on the card, whether that is an email to the association, we need to make sure that we're, you know, we're creating a, a product that we can be proud of. And I always bring it back to my nieces and nephews. You know, is this something that I would be comfortable my nieces and nephews witnessing or hearing? And if I'm not okay with that, then then we've got a problem. But I also think that as individuals, we have a responsibility to make sure we're also creating our own support network. So obviously for me, that starts with family straight away. And that's, I guess, that's looking after me as a person personally but then I guess through hockey I also have a support network as well you know my first first put call always is Joe coming you know straight away and whether that's that um, I haven't had a good game or I wanted to look at a clip or I just wanted to listen or I wanted to tell me actually you, you stuffed that one up and you got that one wrong she's always my voice of reason and I mean I'll forever be thankful that she's that person I'm fortunate she's experienced international hockey as well so she knows where I'm coming from she knows some of the things that I'm going through but also my support network looks, you know, beyond that. It's like, it's you as a coach, it's some of the players, it's some of the colleagues at school as well, you know, who I, I don't want to say treat you like a normal person because I am a normal person, but, you know, bring you back down to earth when, when you need it. It's it's needed where, you know, you come back from an international tournament, let's take the Commonwealth Games and, and the World Cup that were right after each other and then you go back into school and, you know, the very first thing someone does is take the mickey out of you and, you know, just remind you that, you know, you're back in Gizzi and actually you still got to do your job just like everyone else does. So, yeah, making sure that you've got people around you that are going to do what they need to and that you're willing to talk to them and, the key thing to remember too is your support network is absolutely useless unless you're going to use them. So you've got to talk to them, whether it's that you've had a great game or you're um, really struggling with a few things. If you don't reach out and have a conversation, then you're just going to get into a world of pain um, and, and it's a vicious cycle to be in and it can be really lonely. So if you if you don't use them, then yeah, it's useless having them in the first place. 
I think I think that's great advice. Like that support network, it's massive, and it's like it comes in all aspects, like coaching or as a player, to be able to talk, to be able to reflect. Just it helps in the long run. Right, a couple questions just to finish off. How has failure or apparent failure set you up for later success? <laughs> I guess it makes you hungry to to be better. I always look to. It came from a coach, actually, a basketball coach when I was down in Palmerston North um, at university, and he he had a theory with his players around better than before. So to always approach a game or a situation to be better than before. So your second half had to be better than your first half, and whether that was that you shot six points in your first half and you needed to get eight points in your second half, then, then so be it. Um, and so for me, one of mine is... is better than before so if I've had a game where things didn't quite go right or you know I missed that we call it you know the the situation that was sort of right in front of you and it was a um, gift on a platter and you didn't take it if I missed that in the first game then get the next one and don't miss that one and I guess that's how I I look to set myself up for, for success is to always just build on things and while we might see it as failure or as a mistake, there's always a learning opportunity. And if we can learn from it, then we're always going to go forward. Look at why it happened, how it happened, what are you going to do different about that, um, and then go forward from there. And you might not have all the answers yourself. You might have to go to someone and say, help. <laughs> I actually just don't know what happened here. I don't know what went wrong. Can you help me out here? Because you're never going to have the answers yourself. You might like to think you do, but it doesn't matter how experienced you are. You're always going to need the input of other people. Nice. I like, I like that better than before. Something that I'll probably take into my game. <laughs> <laughs> I should probably apply it as a player more often <laughs> than I currently do. And finally, before we, we sign off, what does the value of sport mean to you? Yeah, this is a tough one. I've been thinking about it. I mean, you gave me a heads up about it. And I couldn't come up with a really profound answer. I guess the value of sport is is not so much the sport itself. It's more that sport is a driver or a tool for us to have enjoyment, to become healthy, to make connection with people, to, I guess, to travel the world, you know, in, in my situation. It's it's just that tool that we all have. But without that tool, I wouldn't get to do any of what I get to do. And so, yeah, the value is that it gives me, gives me happiness. It gives me enjoyment. Um, it gives me a a good healthy well-being and it's all through that that I get to make sure that all of that other stuff happens I guess so yeah it's incredible valuable but at the end of the day it's a tool um, and it's what I do with that tool that, that's really important so I think in isolation it's just a sport and it's just a game but when you combine all of those other aspects of it it's invaluable you couldn't put a price on it but in isolation it's worthless yeah I don't know if that's the answer that you wanted sorry Wade <laughs> no it's no, it's great it's a perfect perfect place to to finish up thank you very much for your time it's been a long time coming this i think this has been months um, we've been trying to sit down and have a chat it did take some convincing though wade <laughs> <laughs> and hopefully if all going well there's a lot more of these sort of chats happening but no appreciate your time appreciate you sharing your stories with us no, it's just been great thanks for having me wade mm-hmm.